everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have Sydney back again with us. Sydney is back for more torture. She's on. <laughs> no, <laughs> not, it's not torture. <laughs> I love coming on here. Well, Thank you for having me again. I really appreciate it. Well, you're on uh, Chris, uh, like holiday, holiday break um, and mm-hmm. Christmas break for in between nursing school semesters. So yes. we'll take advantage of that while we can. I'm sure in a few weeks, it's not going to be a possibility. We'll have to wait till the summer. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's going to get crazy soon. Yeah. So, but glad to have you back. So thankful. Um, Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. Remind everyone where they can find you on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is at nursing student Sid. So go look up Sydney's Instagram page and give her a little shout out there. <laughs> and we're going to have, we've got a, a few uh, really good stories. The good nurse story is going to be a little different. So you guys hang out for that because it's, it'll be a little bit different format than we normally do. I have a really special interview and Sydney and I are going to listen to it and then we'll talk about it, but it's really cool. First of all, though, we want to talk about this news story that we just found. I think that a lot of you are going to definitely relate to this story because you message me all the time and tell me how you either are a CNA or have worked as a CNA and worked in settings like this. So I think you're going to really find this interesting. I know I have worked in this in this setting and you, Sydney, have also. Yes, I also have. So it's I think both of us think really totally resonates with us absolutely it's yeah. very disturbing so the story is from the lancasteronline.com it is about t- residents at two lancaster county nursing homes who died after the workers there violated patient transfer policies so basically what this is saying is at these particular and this is two different facilities they there were not a CNA or maybe not a CNA, but some sort of tech maybe or some sort of employee trained or not. I don't know, but they were trying to transfer the patient or the resident as, as, as they called them, maybe from the bed or trying to, you know, get them to the bathroom or something. And the, the resident fell. And as a result of that fall, they had neck injuries that then resulted in them dying, which is so incredibly scary. One story is bad enough. This happened two different times in this one area. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? That's honestly, it's crazy. Because like you said, I worked in a nursing home. And when you sent me this, I totally resonated with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like our nursing homes need such a renovation yeah. and like a change. Because I feel like we hear about this way too often. I know for like in California, some nursing homes don't require you to be licensed. And I don't know, I feel like sometimes when you're not licensed, you don't know the proper ways to transfer people or the proper ways just to do your job. Yeah. I don't know. It's really sad, though. Yeah. You would hope that even, you know, if if for some reason there's such a shortage of licensed nursing assistants that they have to resort to just training themselves, you would hope that they would put them through some extensive training about mm-hmm proper body mechanics about safety patient safety and you know setting them on the side of the bed first and then having them see if they have any symptoms yeah. are you dizzy you know that having them put some weight on their feet and slowly stand up and if any symptoms whatsoever set them back down you know just the mm-hmm. safe those safety issues that are so important when it comes to transferring a patient using a gate belt using two people if i know a lot of times too they have the cnas or 
techs, they have a lot of patience as well. So sometimes they're just there. They want to get it done fast. They just want to like find ways around it kind of to make it faster so they can finish faster. And that is going to end up hurting your resident, which is so sad. But well, in this particular, and this was in Pennsylvania that this happened. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess probably there are from state to state, the little laws are going to vary as far as Mm -hmm. maybe what the facilities are required to to have the types of employees that they're you know required to have and and depending on the the type of facility because it sounds like this is sort of a well it says resident i i envi- i envision sort of like um almost a nursing home kind of not necessarily real high skilled but yeah. it, but at the same time people who cannot take care of themselves so they like an assisted living kind of maybe yeah and the title of the of the article does say nursing home, and I just think that sometimes that can mean different things, you know, to different people yeah. in different state, maybe state to state, what it, you know, what it actually means. What got me too is like one of them, when I was reading it, they just, they lied and said that they just walked in there and saw yeah. that she had like a cut on her head. Right. And that's another thing. Like, I feel like maybe they were just too scared yeah. of losing their job or to say what happened, but... It's like, that's your resident's life. You need to report that. Yeah, they didn't want, they put maybe put them back to bed and just said, oh, I found them in bed bleeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they didn't want to admit that they had helped them get up because they, they didn't want to get in trouble, you know, or, mm-hmm. or be held, held, maybe held liable or accountable for that. Mm-hmm. So it says not too long after, for one of these incidents, not too long after the fall, the resident was found unresponsive the same, that same day. And then they ended up pronouncing them dead. So it happened very quickly. The fall had to have been a pretty bad fall. So it is pretty shocking that that, that employee tried to cover it up with it being of a fall that, that could cause. Although I think sometimes people aren't even aware that some, you know, even something that yeah. seems benign can be really devastating. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's where the training would come in and help out too. Yes. If we were having licensed workers, or at least heavily trained, depending on the facilities, training, I guess. You know, and it there were there were reports done at these facilities, and one of the reports showed that they had had several meetings before this, uh, about a month before this ever happened, and then after, of course, the incident. But just the fact that they had had education and it says re-educate staff so I don't know you know if that means because you know they're they're trying to educate them before you would think well maybe they are having some sort of but if they're understaffed and a lot of these places are because these people apparently required it was known that they were that they required a two-person assist Mm -hmm. and and everyone knows that well if you're if you're in this kind of work you know that when you're taking care of these people one of the things that you get in report from the other person who's been taking care of them before your shift is how do they ambulate how do i how do you what kind of activity level are are they at like can i get them out of bed can i assist them to the chair is it one person is it two or how do they how do they go to the bathroom or do they have to use a bedpan are they incontinent that sort of thing all of that is important information to know and most people mm-hmm. working in this situation know that. So somehow someone was not aware or were, were just not following the safety, you know, guidelines mm-hmm. and 
went ahead and let was trying to get them up anyway. Mm-hmm. And one one of the one of the facilities says that there was sincere remorse at the home. They didn't release the names of the people, and I'm I don't think that they really necessarily should, just because it doesn't sound like it's something intentional that was done. It sounds like they yeah. were trying to help them get up. I, it, yeah, it was an accident. Yeah, it's awful. It's just terrible. Um, it says that they responded immediately, but the, but they died about an hour after they fell. You know, it was just a bad fall. And this one says that the employee was terminated, whereas like the some, the one before this, the one where they covered it up, yeah, or lied. I guess we says they don't know what happened, mm. right? It doesn't show what happened to the employee. Yeah, they weren't sure. You would hope, especially since the yeah. person was trying to be deceitful and trying to cover it up, not wanting to get in trouble. You would hope that they would not continue to work there and then the other one yeah they they let them go because they didn't follow whatever safety guidelines that they had in place they said you know it takes two people you cannot get a person up by themselves this person Mm -hmm. and they did it anyway so who knows what the reason is it's sad all the way around for everyone involved i'm sure that the people Mm -hmm. who the families the families it's awful and the and the workers yeah. Having to live with what happened and maybe, you know, the regret of knowing that they got them up. They sh- Maybe they're, you know, they're going to be thinking about that forever, probably. Like, oh, I wish I just mm-hmm. had not gotten them Taken, up. Yeah. It's awful. It's just really sad. So that's that's our news story. If you guys have an opinion about that, send me a message. See, let me know if you've, have you ever had someone fall where you work. Has anything like this happened to you or do you know of personal situation? Just send me a message. Let me know. And so now we have our bad nurse story, another sort of complicated story. Yeah. With a few little twists and turns. So this is the story of Ricardo Muscolino and his wife, Laura. So Laura and Ricardo were both nurses and they met on night shift at working at the hospital. Laura was married at the time. And she had married when she was really young and her husband was older and he had a son already when they got married. So then later into their marriage, she found out that her husband didn't want to have any more children. The way he kind of looked at it was, well, I'm older. I already had my child. I'm not really wanting to go back through that again. She's younger. She's thinking, well, I really want children. And it kind of made them sort of grow apart and they mm-hmm. you know created some distance between them so now she's at work and she meets Ricardo who is also a nurse he apparently had a very charming personality was you know funny and joking around with her that sort of thing before you know it she starts going out to coffee with him and going to nursing conferences with a group of nurses and he would be one of the nurses and eventually she ended up getting a divorce from her husband and she started dating Ricardo. So he was very ambitious. He started a nurse staffing agency. (laughs) He saw that there were staffing shortages at the hospital where they worked and he just started his own company and it became very successful. He was making a lot of money with this company doing very, very well. So Laura decides she wants to go back to school to get her master's degree. She wants to become a nurse and a nurse anesthetist or a CRNA. <laughs> and that's not an easy. Yeah, I'll say that's really impressive. <laughs> yeah, that is it. Mm-hmm. It's 
I mean, I would say it's probably one of the hardest tracks that there is as far as, you know, moving yourself up in the ladder mm-hmm. of the nursing career. In nursing, yeah. You you really don't, you shouldn't go try to go to nurse anesthetist school without having first worked in like an ICU or an ER somewhere, somewhere like that, where you can kind of become familiar with the different drips mm-hmm. that's used to sedate and put people under, because that's what, that's what you're going to be doing most of the time. A lot of times nurse anesthetists, nurse anesthetists, that's such a hard word to say. It is. <laughs> a lot of times they they don't even have an anesthesiologist in the room when surgeries are performed. Oh. Yeah. So when I was in nursing school, I got to go into a surgery and just sort of observe. I was there all day long and saw several different surgeries. I never once saw an anesthesiologist, like an actual medical doctor. I only saw the nurse anesthetist from case to case that came in all day long. Oh, wow. (laughs) I have never met a nurse anesthetist, but I really want to. I want to shadow one. I know there's a couple of people in my program right now that want to be nurse anesthetist. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'll power to you guys. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Like I really love interacting with my patients Mm -hmm. and like seeing them throughout the day and building that relationship. And I think that there are people who love they love the medical part of it. They like they love mm-hmm. the medicine and and taking and and taking care of people and healing people and yeah. caring for people. But 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 they might not necessarily like people. You know the people the people. <laughs> it's weird, but you know they, it's like they want to be a part of all of that of helping mm-hmm. everyone. They definitely like that aspect of it. But when it comes to actually being a people person, they would just rather them be asleep, you know? Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> That's what's so cool, though, about nursing is there's so many, like, mm. routes you could go. Yeah. So many different things. It is true. It's true. There's something for everyone. And Laura, having been a nurse at a hospital already, decided that's where that's the route she wanted to go. Ricardo, making all his money, <laughs> decides he wants to pay for her to go to school. They're not married. So it's like... It's they were a, just dating, right? At right. That point? So this is a big deal. Wow. That's expensive. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To pay for somebody to get their master's degree. Uh, yeah. That's really, really, that's a lot of money. So she ends up applying for school. She gets accepted. And then she starts going to nurse anesthetist school out of town where they live. It's just maybe an hour away. And so... While she's at school, I guess, because they are so far away, he's working a lot with his his uh, business and they break up and they kind of take some time apart. Well, while they're doing that, she is sort of seeing some other people at school and then he just shows up one day at school, at her school, and she's shocked to find, oh. you know, that he's there and, and it's this awkward kind of like, what are you doing here? <laughs> That's a red flag to me. Well, him showing up like that, especially if they're broken up, you know, that's kind of scary. Yeah. And so I guess in his mind, he was thinking, well, yeah, we may maybe we're taking a break, but I didn't expect you to take the money that I was giving you to pay for school and then start dating someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he got upset and decided he was going to sue her for the money (gasps) that he gave her for school. And she's like, I don't have it. I don't have. Yeah. I can't give you the money. I don't have it. And he sued her. He, he filed a lawsuit. And so they um, are going back and forth with this lawsuit. And then I guess he starts calling her again, trying to convince her to come back to him. And he's like, hey, go to this intersection. Mm-hmm. And she goes there and he says, look 
out like on the ground beside uh, right at this certain spot. And so she did. And there were tons of pennies there. And he said that every time he would go through that intersection, he if he was thinking about her, he would throw a penny over there. And of course, there's like lots of pennies. Mm -hmm. And she's just completely won over by this. Oh, my God. Ridiculous story. Because when I read this the first time, and I there, this is actually a little, there's a little TV show called Investigation Discovery. I think it's a channel, and then there's like mm-hmm. a little, yeah. you know, that's a channel. I love that, yeah, I love that channel. The channel, and then there's all these different true crime shows on there. One of them, mm-hmm. I think, is called Fatal Vows, and it's about husbands and wives who, you know, things like this happen. And so in the TV show, I was watching that, and I was like thinking, Does she really believe that those pennies were one at a time at different times? I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure he probably dumped all those pennies all at once. He probably did. I mean, come on. he That's just crazy. But he's very charming. And Mm. so she she bought it. And I'm sure she probably was also thinking he'll drop the lawsuit if we go back to him. I don't worry about that nonsense. Mm -hmm. So they do get back together. He does drop the lawsuit. They get married in Maui. He pays for all of the guests to fly to Maui, and they have this big wedding there. Wow. Yeah, it's very elaborate. After they mm-hmm. get back, she gets pregnant. Of course, that's what she had wanted, you know, from before, mm-hmm. from from her Kids. previous marriage. Yeah, this yeah. is what she wanted. She wanted to be married and have children. Well, she had a miscarriage. So she had a miscarriage, and they're both devastated over it it's very upsetting Mm -hmm. of course they decide that it might be because of the gases that she's breathing during the surgeries where she's working as a nurse anesthetist so she quits her job can you imagine after going through all of that then you just quit that's crazy (laughs) i know i think it is too that's it's just so hard any Mm -hmm. i don't know it's like it's difficult though because she really wants children. Yeah, and I mean she probably loved being a nurse too. So it's like that balance of like, how do I have kids but also fulfill my passion? Yeah, I don't know. Well, she decides that having children is more important, and mm-hmm. it actually works because when she quits her job and she starts staying at home, they do she they get pregnant again and they end up having two children, two little girls. And they're happy for a while. They're, they have a really great relationship. And the little girls, you know, start growing up. And they're, I guess, teenagers at this, at some, at the point that about when this happened, sort of maybe 13, 14 years old, something like that. And Ricardo's staffing agency starts to fail. So I guess these hospitals were not hiring a lot of the travel or not travel, but just not hiring a lot from this, from staffing agencies, I guess at, at this time, things were kind of, um, the economy wasn't doing real well. Mm -hmm. Creditors start calling their house and Laura finds out. So she, Laura discovers that Ricardo is not paying their mortgage. He's just letting things go. And, it just creates a lot of tension, a lot of financial mm-hmm. tension. Mm-hmm. So then they do something that's really interesting. I, I'm just like, 
it's just really odd to me. I, <laughs> but you know, then again, think about all the other stuff that happened. So, yeah, they decide to separate on paper. So they get a divorce, but they're not divorced. They're separated, mm-hmm. but they still live in the same house. He's still traveling for work for his job, even though it's not doing real well. Mm-hmm. But I guess the tax, the government is coming after them about the taxes. So them separating somehow is able to, they're able to protect their home and because I guess she keeps it in her name. I feel like that's getting more common though. I mean, mm-hmm. at least where I live, I know like a couple couples that have done that. Really? And they just like never divorced. They just remain separated and pretty much live their own life. And somehow it just, well, and the interesting thing is it's they, when they separated, now I do know that there's some people who sort of separate, but don't necessarily get divorced. But for financial reasons, they don't want to have to live two totally different, like sell the house and split all Mm -hmm. whatever and split the bills and everything. So they stay together in the same house, but they like live in separate rooms and go about their business as if it's sort of like they live under one roof, but they're two separate lives. I don't think that's what this was. I think they were still basically together in the house. Yes. They were married too. And they have kids. I wonder if that had like an influence on that choice too. I don't know. Not wanting to separate, you know, break up the family for the children's Mm -hmm. sake. And that could have been yeah. it as well. But I don't think that Ricardo at all expected her to be dating anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know? So he's still traveling with his with his job. She takes up a hobby as a paranormal investigator. So she starts doing this job where she's like traveling and setting up cameras trying to ca- trying to catch like de- like ghost ghosts yeah kind of ghost hunters. i love that me too that is so cool yeah so anyway that's i digress completely laura starts working as a paranormal investigator starts traveling with a guy his name is bailey maxwell so this guy is the person who kind of goes and sets up the cameras and does like the the audio kind of audio visual kind of work, you know, the setup of all this. And he's a lot younger than her. She's in, by this time she's in her late thirties. Okay. She's got teenage girls. He's like 22 and they're going together in these assignments. And they've obviously got this in common, you know, the, the paranormal kind of thing. So while she, they're together, she starts having an affair with this guy. You know, and it's really sad because I, I think about her, her children and, mm-hmm. and that the thing is, Ricardo is traveling for work and the two of them obviously can't be doing that great if this is mm-hmm. going on. So it's, you know, he's traveling a lot. Who knows what's going on there? She's doing her own thing. But what I, what really bothers me is that the, the girls, because the t- one of the teenage daughters sees her on the phone a lot and then gets her phone and finds the messages that she's sending to this guy. And so that's what bothers me to think of, you know, her daughter's kind of going through that and their whole world being shattered, their Mm -hmm. parents, their family, the whole life that they thought 
was solid, you know, kind of like shook from out from under them. Yeah. Nothing is, will like be the same no. probably with them. Yeah. So yeah, they learned the hard way that relationships are volatile sometimes and sometimes people can make it seem as though everything is fine when it's really not, you know. Mm-hmm. So her daughter Victoria is completely shocked and she decides to tell her dad about it. And about a week later, she hears her parents arguing. So she and her sister go into one of their rooms and kind of like hunkering down, you know, and mm-hmm. hiding because they can, it's just, it sounds bad, you know, mm-hmm. in the other room. Then they hear gunshots, like five gunshots. Yeah. So she calls 911. The police get to the house. They find the girls. They lead them out of the house. Then they find Laura in the bedroom. She's lying on the bed. She has multiple gunshot wounds. She's still conscious. She's gasping for air. She's kind of moving around, but she's not able to talk. And so they're trying to ask her, you know, what happened? Who did this to you? And she's not able to really communicate with them. But they can tell that the shooter had to be really close to her when this happened, just based mm-hmm. on, you know, the way that, that, just based on the injuries. So while this is going on, Ricardo walks into the police station, holding his hands up and turns himself in. He says, I'm a wanted man. He tells him what he's done. They took him into custody Laura does, unfortunately, end up dying at the hospital later because of the injuries, and they charge Ricardo with her murder. Now, because of her interest in paranormal activity, she had installed video surveillance in their home. And so this video surveillance, they played that, the video that was kind of going on during the trial. And so they could see Ricardo going up and down the stairs and that sort of thing. And then they can hear the gunshots. They don't really see exactly what happened. I don't think they even saw them arguing. They just saw oh. that he was obviously in the house mm-hmm. because of the video. They could tell he was there. And then they obviously hear the gunshots and they know. Well, obviously, he walked into the, the police department. And that's crazy. Ricardo, yeah. And he never denied that he did it. But I think he was just saying that he was maybe not responsible because of his mental state sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And the jury did find him, though, guilty of second-degree murder. The judge said that it's really disturbing to the court that a person who lived an otherwise law-abiding life committed a heinous crime with his daughters in the home, all because his wife had an affair. So he was sentenced to the maximum 30 years on the second degree murder conviction and then also maximum 20 years on the use of a firearm in commission of a felony. So I think that's sort of how they got the 50, the 50 years, which obviously he deserved. Mm -hmm. I just feel so bad for those girls. Yeah, I do, too. To hear the shots, too, and to be there. Well, they didn't see it, but like it still has that impact. It's like their mom. Yes. And then. For Victoria, who she told her dad, and I'm sure she thought she was doing the right thing. I'm sure she was probably devastated, would have no idea, absolutely no way of knowing and you know, no idea that her dad would do something like this. 
Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it would probably be really hard not to be going over and over that in your mind and, you know, wishing that you just hadn't done it. I hope that she has been able to get counseling and has been mm-hmm. able to work through this so that she doesn't blame herself because, of course, it's not her fault at all mm-hmm. in the least. Not one, you know, not one bit. Mm-hmm. He, he has to serve at least 50 years. Oh, no, sorry. He has to serve at least 50 percent of the time that he was sentenced to, which is 50 years, before he is eligible for parole. So I guess after 25 years. 25, yeah. He'll be eligible. Wow. Yeah. And that's our story. What's crazy to me a little bit, I didn't know if like this is, I guess it correlates, but so they're both nurses, right? Yeah. He sh- shoots her five times, but doesn't kill her on like with those five shots. She's yeah. still conscious, right? Yeah. You would think if he was trying to fully like kill her. Like, he would know where to shoot. That sounds so bad, but, like, you would no, think. No, I, I get it, yeah. So do you think he was just trying to, like, punish her? That makes sense, but, I mean, at the same time, he'd kill her. But he, I know. But five times. That's, yeah, it's excessive. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but so. I don't know, it's something to think about. I don't know if he was thinking at all. Really. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, just kind of, like, reacting, and then maybe he ran out of bullets. I mean, Maybe there was only maybe. five. I don't know. Or maybe the gun jammed yeah. or something like that. And then he just left. But I I know what, you, I know what you're saying, though. I, he probably mm-hmm. just kind of like stunned, just left. Yeah. And then just decided, wow, what have I just done? And there's, I guess there's no point in me trying to say I didn't do it. I might as well just go turn myself in. You turn know? himself in. Yeah. So that's our bad nurse story. So we can start talking about our good nurse story. And this is different because so... A few weeks ago, I did this special campaign where we were talking about organ donation, and I was trying to encourage people to go sign up to be an organ donor so that on your driver's license, it kind of you have the little heart and it shows mm-hmm. you know, that you've you've signed up, and that way, if anything happens, your family doesn't have to be involved in that decision making because you've already done it for them, and it doesn't have to be part of the all of the stuff that you know. Mm-hmm. That goes along with a terrible tragedy happening. So when I started that and we were putting our pictures on Instagram and Facebook of showing us, uh, showing ourselves with our driver's license and the little heart and saying, show me your heart. And we were, and everybody was kind of putting their, uh, putting that out there. One of our listeners messaged me on Instagram and said, Hey, I just want to let you know, I love the campaign. I am an organ donor and actually I'm recovering from donating my kidney to my aunt and I am she said she is a nurse and her aunt is also a nurse and I just could not believe how amazing that was and I was like I would just love to do you as a your story as a good nurse story I mean that's a exactly what that's exactly what that is you're a wonderful yeah. nurse and I just love this story and she's like yeah I said well can I maybe do like a little interview. I'd like to talk to you. So she agreed to talk to me through Zoom, just like a mm-hmm. little video chat kind of thing. And we recorded it. So I thought it would be kind of cool to play that audio from that recording. And we could talk That'd be about so it. so cool. Yeah. So I'm going to play that now and let everybody listen to it. And then we can chat about it after. 
Hi, Rebecca. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I'm really excited about this because we just recently did this campaign on social media and on and on here where we're trying to get people to sign up to be an organ donor. So one of the things that I thought would be kind of cool if people kind of show their heart on their car on their driver's license to show that they're an organ donor. And that way, because to me, if you sign up to be an organ donor yourself, then it kind of makes it a little bit easier to a little bit easier on the family, you know, if they're if there ever has to be a decision like that made, then they don't have to, you know, go through, go through making the family have to make one more decision and, you know, during that stressful time. And so we kind of did this campaign, just sort of trying to encourage people to sign up to be an organ donor and, and kind of bring more awareness to organ donation and that sort of thing. And then lo and behold, you see that campaign and message me on Instagram and I'm just so incredibly overwhelmed and just amazed by what you did that I just can't even, I just, just crazy. And I wanted to use your story. And then you were gracious enough to be willing to come onto the show and tell your story. So Rebecca is a nurse, of course. And first of all, before we get into the, the meat of the story and what all you did, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a nurse here in Birmingham, Alabama. So, you know, good old southernness. <laughs> no, I became a nurse back in 2016. Nursing was my second degree, actually. So I went back to school for that. And so I'm st- I still consider myself a very young baby nurse and still learning everything. Yeah. And I work here at Children's of Alabama. I'm in the NICU. And then I've also done Pete's cardiac ICU as well. So I go back and forth. I traveled for a little bit. And then I came back home to do my organ donation and help with my aunt and recovering. That's amazing, Rebecca. So you said it's your second degree. What did you do before? Uh, my first degree, I have a bachelor's in foreign language and literature. Whoa. Oh my goodness. So do you speak other languages? Uh, I would not say I'm fluent at all. <laughs> um, I studied Spanish. I was able to, I was actually able to do a study abroad in Spain, which was wonderful. But, you know, you come back home and then you start nursing school and if you don't use it, you lose it. So it's, it's real rough when I have families that I'll have another nurse like, will you speak Spanish? I'm like, please don't tell them that. Please don't. Let's get an actual interpreter because this is going to be real bad. (laughs) Well, that's really cool. Anyway, though, I mean, I think that's really neat. I've always wanted to speak a second language. So that's neat that uh, you at least have that kind of foundation because I'm sure you're able to communicate somewhat on some level, even if you're not comfortable having a complete, you know, conversation about oh, the yeah. issues and stuff. I, I can I can get a, like kind of talk around a lot of things and yeah. you know explain to them like in very simple sentences like what I'm doing and everything. Are you married? Nope, no, I am not. I'm a I'm not married, and I'm a happy dog mom. I have Yay. a two and a half year old lab, and she is oh. crazy. Her name is Georgia Grace, so a very Southern name. Very Southern name. I love it. I love it. So do you enjoy nursing? I do. I love being a nurse. I can actually say, like, I feel like I was put on the earth to be a nurse. So. Oh, that's wonderful. So many people tell me that. I think you kind of fall into usually one or the other. Either you are either you absolutely love it and you feel like you're just made to do this, or you're like, what else could I do? This maybe uh, Oh, no, trust me. There's definitely moments after that third, fourth, 12-hour shift. You're like, what am I doing? with my yeah. life. Like, I what should have listened to I... my uncle. I should have gone into IT. Yeah. Yeah. There's different situations because stress, you know, there's so many situations that can cause stress that, that you, I'm sure everyone has those times when you second guess and doubt yourself and, and everything. But overall, you know, I'm sure you're an amazing nurse. So what's your least favorite thing about nursing? Just when you don't have a good outcome, just the yeah. poor outcomes. And with kids, it's really hard because 
just not being able to comfort that because there's no comforting mm-hmm. a parent through that mm-hmm. hard time. So that's, yeah. that's the worst for me. It's just, you know, I just have to be the shoulder to cry on because mm-hmm. you don't, there's no comforting. There's no words. There's nothing you can do. Happen to give that bad news um, to a parent that, you know, you're not able to do anything else for their child. Yeah. Pediatric nursing, NICU, the, any, anything like that OB, I, I just emotionally would not be good for the patient and the family because I would be a, an emotional wreck and we you can't do that. You have to be able to be strong for them. Well, I mean, but you have so many more good days than you do bad days, I feel like, with and the NICU and just with pediatrics because kids are so resilient. Like they come in with blood gases. You're like, oh my gosh, like how are you ever going to recover from this? And then, you know, two days late, you know, two weeks later, you, ha- you see a toddler and you see the nurse chasing them down the hallway. You're like, what? What? What is happening? That's awesome. Did you guys dress your NICU babies up for Halloween? We did. Yeah. One of our nurses, um, her and her mom will like crochet the little outfits for all, you know, our patients. And it's the cutest thing ever. It's probably one of my favorites. And then um, with Christmas coming up, one of our direct, our assistant director and her husband will dress up as like Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus and go and visit our NICU babies. And it's oh, just the cutest thing. I love it. That's wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about your aunt and why, whatever you, are comfortable telling us about what was going on with her, why she needed a transplant. Mm -hmm. So she is, she's been a nurse for over 30 years. She's one of the reasons I became a nurse, Um, just seeing her and just being always in awe of her, of how smart and how quick she's able, like on her feet to do all these amazing things. So just growing up with her, there was no sympathy in our household growing up. She's a ER, ICU, life flight, (laughs) trauma nurse. And she was like, you're fine. I'm like, Okay. (laughs) She got her first transplant back in 1973 at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. She was uh, 11 years old. She had like uncontrollable hypertension. And I think she had some ureter reflux. So things like now we would be able to diagnose pretty easily like in a kid and be able to treat it. You know, back then they weren't real sure. Um, She had gone to a pediatrician's office just for a checkup or just not feeling good. And then it was an adult nurse who had taken her blood pressure and was like, her blood pressure is really high for a kid. And that kind of set the ball rolling. She, you know, had multiple surgeries and ended up on dialysis as a, you know, young child. So, um, but my grandmother, so her mom, it was her first donor, living donor. So she got her kidney transplant and Grady Hospital. And she's been great ever since. She became a nurse and has been at the bedside ever since. She's done a little bit of everything. So her mom donated a kidney to her when she was 11. Yes. So my my grandmother was probably in her 30s. Yeah, she had to have been in her 30s. Um, wow. She got tested and did all of that. And, you know, my aunt said that one of the reasons she became a nurse is because she spent the majority of her childhood in hospitals and just watching the nurses and her and the nurses had a great relationship. And she'd be like the only pediatric patient in adult floor. So she became a nurse. And, and she's worked all yeah. these years. All these years. With one kidney. With one kidney. One donated kidney. Yeah, because uh, um, she had, uh, they'd taken both of her kidneys out when she was a kid. So she had all the things and was tea tiny growing up. It's just, I'm blown away by the fact that she was working on working and be, doing the really difficult job, physically difficult job of being a nurse, having one kidney and then that one kidney is a, a donated kidney. So I'm, I'm sure she's taken lots of medications. Yeah, for uh, 46 years, prednisone, Imuran, those have been her two medications and she's she was rocking and rolling with it. She's doing great. Then um, 
back in April, we got her official like you're in stage five, you know, where you got to start talking about dialysis and looking at potential candidates and went through the surgeries to um, have her fistula placed in her arm. And we just, I was attempting to start a traveling nurse career. So uh, I was in St. Louis and I had already signed a contract to go up to North Carolina but then she just started getting real sick and we thought we were going to have to start dialysis sooner. And I came back home from North Carolina and started working back here in Birmingham. So is your mom her mother's sister? No, she is on my, she's my dad's sister. So she's on my father's side. Okay. So your dad's sister. Okay. So when you were born, how old was she? So she was 26 when I was born. So she was 26. So I mean, I just in my mind thinking about how this happened when she was 11 years old and she gets sick and loses both kidneys and her mom is able to donate a kidney. And then when she's 26 years old, the person who will ultimately in the future <laughs> end up giving her a kidney, oh, it's killing me. I can't even stand it. I, I, I'm going to start crying. So I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, her and I were always real close growing up. Like I said, she was, she was always, she's always my person that I've been able to go to. You know, you always have have those special bonds with aunts and everything, or I feel like, and I just, I hope my niece and nephew have that bond with me, um, like I do with her, because a bad day or anything, you know, you know, typical fight with your parents when you're in high school. So call <laughs> her, and I'm like, oh, my parents are the worst. She's like, well, you're kind of being a turd. So Aww, she just but, tell you what you needed to hear. <laughs> oh yeah, there, lots of tough love growing up. <laughs> that's good. That's really that's amazing. So whenever. And I obviously you decided to it's not like she just all of a sudden got sick and you had to make a decision. It's probably something that you guys always knew she would get to this point. Is it something you guys just always talked about? Everyone. Um, it was always an open conversation with us, like a very open dialogue. And I told her from, gosh, I think high school that, you know, kind of was when you really were like, oh, OK, like my aunt will eventually need like another kidney. I always told her, I was like, well, you can have mine. She was like, I'm not taking your kidney. I was like, no, you'll like get over it. So from high school age, I was always told her, I was like, if you ever, when we ever, we get to that point, I was like, you're taking my kidney. Like, there's no questions. Like, yeah, I, I will knock you out and do it myself. Like, you're going to do this. So what was the process that you had to go through? Like, I mean, did you get, when did you get tested to determine whether or not you could give it to her? So, um, you know, her journey began back in April of this year um, with the official diagnosis. And then, you know, she had the fistula surgeries and we had everything done here at UAB, so University of Alabama in Birmingham. And so she got her official diagnosis. We went through all of the education with the clinic and what to expect, um, you know, getting on the cadaver list at first. And then in October, I got tested and it actually wasn't just me that was offering up my kidney. My sister, my cousin and his wife, all of us were going to go to UAB and get tested. I just happened to get that first date before them. So she had four potential living donors to offer a kidney for her. So I went through and see, I got tested like, I think October 7th, I think. And a few days later, I'd gotten a call from my coordinator who was absolutely amazing through everything. And she was like, I, we were in home goods. We were shopping because, you know, who doesn't love to shop? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. And it's Halloween stuff, too. I love home goods. That store is awesome. Favorite. God, I spend so much money there. <laughs> and she called me and she was like, well, I have news. I was like, what? I thought she was going to tell me. Like, I was like, I knew our blood types were compatible. So, you know, we're just waiting for like the antigens and everything. So she was like, well, you get to give your aunt your kidney. I was like, excuse me, what? She was like, you get to give your aunt your kidney. I was like, hold on. So I run over to my aunt and I put uh, my coordinator on speakerphone. I was like, 
hey, I need you to say this to my aunt, you know, because I was in shock disbelief that I was hearing this, you know, two days after I'd gotten tested. And she says it again. And we both just start crying, like in home goods, like people were stopping and staring. And they're like, thought something horrible had happened. We're like, no, it's happy tears. So yeah, we found out and told everybody in our family. And we're so excited. We we got our transplant November 6th. So I'm a little, I mean, November 7th. So I'm a little four, four weeks out from recovery. Yeah, that had just happened when when I put that on Instagram and then you messaged me and I'm like, wait, what are you saying? You literally just did this. You're, you were still recuperating and recovering from that. So what was, I mean, I, I, I'm almost hesitant to, to ask, but was it painful? I mean, were you scared? I mean, what was, I mean, I had my, so for me, I have never been really been sick. I've never had an IV. I've never been hospitalized. I'm 30 years old and I've never had anything like that. Like, you know, I don't have kids or anything like that. So just kind of the typical, you know, hesitations and then being a nurse, you know, you're like, you know what happens. And you're like, okay, that's a little terrifying. And UAB is a research education hospital. So I'm like, are you the resident? I know. What's your role? <laughs> what are you doing to me? And so um, no, besides just some hesitations, you know, just general anxiety. I mean, there was never a, um, sorry, my dog scratching at the door. <laughs> But no, there was no hesitation or anything. You know, I got there pre-op. We were actually in the same bay, like in bays right next to each other down Aww. in pre-op. And our family was there. And at the last thing I remember was telling everybody bye. And the CRNA student, she's like, all right, here's some versed. I was like, okay. I was out. I remember waking up in recovery. It felt like a five minute nap. Wow. Oh my. That's so are you fully recovered now? So I'm still on, I still have weight restrictions. I can't lift anything heavier than 10 pounds for like another two weeks. Okay. They don't really want me like riding or like riding courses, which is something I love to do or running or anything like that. It's just they're like, we don't want anything jiggling too much right now. And I was like, okay. So gone a little stir crazy, but I go back to work beginning of January. So beginning of January. So how much mm-hmm. work have you, did you have to miss for this whole thing? So the hospital I work for was absolutely amazing because I came in as a rehire at the like September 30th and again, all of this moved a lot faster than any of us were expecting. So the hospital grandfathered my time in from the two years I'd worked there prior to allow me like protective FMLA leave and they're like, take as much time as you need. So I've been, I worked a shift. I had surgery Thursday. I got off work. I think Tuesday morning and that was my last shift. So I worked up till like two days before surgery. Wow. And you go back in January. Yes, ma'am. So do you feel different at all other than Um, just having had surgery? But yeah, other than just like incisions and feeling like numb around the incision areas, because I have the three laparoscopic punctures. That was the weirdest thing was coming out of recovery and then having this big, I was like, I look pregnant and it was very weird. And being high on drugs as well, you're like, what has happened to my stomach? Yeah. And then I have, like, if you, if I would have had a C-section, if I would have ever had a kid, you know, it's that lower C, you know, lower abdominal, super pubic area C, um, incision. Yeah. But other than just numbness, um, no, not really. No. Just some like weird spasming pain sometimes, but no I've read that that's normal. Any long-term treatment that you have to do or check No, out? I'm not. I have to do blood work six months, 12 months, and 24 months post-surgery just to check levels. And they really encouraged me to get a primary care mm. provider, which I've, I have been good. I have made an appointment to 
established with a primary care, but no other than just be mindful of, you know, I've kind of put myself on a renal diet, you know, just watching my sodium and protein, which I was already on that diet, you know, coming back home, living with her and everything. Um, so no, no long-term residuals, just, you know, be mindful. Don't hurt that one kidney you have. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so they're like no contact sports. I was like, I'm, I'm old. Trust me. There will be no contact sports. <laughs> We're past that stage now. I was like, I'm over that. Trust me. Well, Rebecca, I'm so incredibly proud of you. And it's, I really appreciate you being a, willing to come on to the show and share your story and kind of bring a, more awareness. I just, every chance that I get, I would like to bring, continue to bring awareness about organ donation and, course we talk about the cadaver donations and you know when when things happen unfortunately when that is part of life death is part of life and so if we're able to help people continue to live a, um, a nice active normal life once we're gone that that's wonderful and what you've done is actually given a part of yourself when you're still alive that's amazing to me that's I it's just, it's hard for me to imagine. I'm not, I, I, I don't know if I would do it. I've never been in a situation like that. I would hope that, that I would. I think that if, if the, you know, if the right person came along, I probably, or if, if, I don't know, who knows if anybody came along and said, can I have a kidney? Maybe I would just be like, sure. Why not? I don't know. It's, it's kind of one of those things I'm sure you don't know unless you're in that situation. Yeah. And it's like my family and I, like we're all, we're a very close family. So there's, there was no hesitation, no second guessing. It's like, okay, like this is happening. We're going to do this. And thankfully with her and I being in the medical field, you know, we were able to kind of understood uh, what was going on like with the education classes. But it's definitely one of those, if you don't do your own research, if you don't have like that patient advocate, you know, it's really hard to difficult. And even now, like with her medications, because they've changed her um, off the inurin, she's now on like Tacro and Celsept for her anti-rejection medications and just making sure you get to lab on time or having those extra resources and, you know, being able to navigate the crazy medical world as it is, it's just really hard. And I can see why patients don't take their medicine. Mm -hmm. you know, they don't have the resources because it's a really expensive medication. And, you know, if you just don't have the time or, you know, it's just really kind of heartbreaking seeing some of the people that come into clinic and you're like, wow, like this is, this is sad. Or, you know, they've, their kidneys been rejected. And so they're having to get a third or a fourth transplant. Like it's just uh, psychologically, it takes a toll on you more on the um, recipient, I feel like than the donor, but I just always, you know, when, you know, she's been such an inspiration to me and she you know, showed me even as a transplant patient, I mean, she's been married for over 30 years as well. And, you know, she has a wonderful husband and they have such a great marriage. So she's definitely one of those people that like I, asp I aspire to be <laughs> like her. So she is definitely my role model and one of those people, you know, are questioning or wanting to know more about transplant, like definitely just educate yourself. There's tons of social media pages like on Facebook, you know, reach out, ask questions. That's the best you can do is just ask questions. Well, thank you for doing this and helping to bring further awareness. You are a huge inspiration for me and I know for my listeners too. Uh, we just need to be talking about it more so that people can be more, you know, educated about it, especially when it comes to cadaver donation, because I think a lot, there are, are a lot of myths out there regarding mm -hmm. what happens whenever you know, certain situations of, in an unexpected 
accident or something like that, whether or not they're going to try to save your life if you yeah. have signed up to be a donor. I mean, there's, I don't know where this stuff comes from, but we're not vultures. We will save you. Like, Absolutely. We're not like, those are some good kidneys. Let mm-hmm. me take those. Yeah. There's no, there's just not ever any talk like that. Nobody was even thinking that way. So, but it's just, I think those, once those things get, those rumors get started, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to to stop them and people get that idea in their head and they're like, eh, I don't think so. I better not, you know, mm-hmm. or they think, well, I'll just, my family will decide. And that's, that's totally fine. If that's, if that's what people want to do and they, they feel like that's the best thing for them, them to do, but have the conversation so that mm-hmm. they know what you want and then it make it will make it easier, you know? Oh, definitely. It's just one of those things, like I said, it's just, it needs to be an open conversation. And if that's something you want to do, go ahead and express that to your family, mm-hmm. you know, put it on your driver's license and let people know, like, this is something I'm adamant about. I know for me, I'm like, yeah, take whatever you can. Mm-hmm. I don't need it. Exactly. Like you said, I mean, you're going to be saved if you come into the hospital. If you're a trauma patient, you will be saved. Like yes. they're going to do everything they can. A hundred percent. But I mean, like I said, transplants always been very near and dear to our family. So um, very big. And, you know, we have Legacy of Hope here in Birmingham and that's our organ center. And they're absolutely wonderful with, you know, talking to families and, you know, having outreach and everything with transplant patient, with transplant recipients and everything and trying to make it a more open conversation. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. So what did you think about that? What do you think about Rebecca? She is so inspiring. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I love her. Well, I what I thought was so fascinating about her story is how she knew she's known since she was a little since she was a young girl that she was going to do this. She said from the time she was mm-hmm. like a teenager, I think she decided she wanted to do it when probably from the time that she understood that her aunt was mm-hmm. probably going to have to at some point have a, another kidney transplant that. And and she and she realized, oh, I have to, you know, I can. She's I was like do already this. planning on giving it to her. Is that not wonderful? That's so cool. I also think it's awesome that there were like three other family members. Yeah. That were willing to do it too. Yeah. The support behind that family is incredible. It really is. And she, you know, she, she was the one, I guess, that came up first to do it. Mm-hmm. And she just lined right up and did it. No, no questions asked. Everything went great. She's recuperating now just just doing wonderful and I, I love both of these nurses are mm-hmm. amazing she's obviously amazing it sounds like her aunt is a wonderful nurse as well has done a lot of great things in her life in spite of the fact that she was a recipient of a kidney transplant and having to be on anti-rejection medication her whole life and but she didn't let that stop her mm-hmm. she had her first one at 11 right yeah. 11 years old yes oh my gosh yeah and it was her mom that donated, yeah, the kidney, which is so cool. So I and That's I so incredible, yeah. And it's just really neat that she, you know, her she, when she's eleven, she has to get through this transplant, and then her mom gives gives her her kidney. But what's interesting is that she said her aunt was like twenty six when she was born, twenty six or twenty seven when she was born, and now she's. I think she said like, you know, 30 or something. And she, mm-hmm. so all that time, you know, has passed and she ends up giving so she, the kidney that her mom, that her aunt's mother, you know, gave her all those years ago lasted a long time. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool though, that when she was in the hospital though, when she was 11, that the nurses are the ones like that inspired her to become a nurse. Yeah. 
I do too. It's so cool. Oh yeah. I love that. Me too. Me too. But that's why like the, have you ever heard of like the nurses inspire nurses? Yes. I love I that. I love that. And I think that like shines in this situation. Yes. With the ant. Oh, I do too. This is such an inspiring story. It's the reason, this is the sort of thing, it's, this sort of story is the reason that we do the good nurse story at the end. Mm-hmm. We want that, we want to end on a good note, good positive note, inspiring people to do things just like this, to help other people. And so thank you, Rebecca, for coming on to the show and, and sharing your amazing story with us and being willing to donate life to your aunt and inspire other people and giving of yourself. She's, I'm sure she's a, just an amazing nurse. Yeah. She works she's a NICU nurse, right? NICU nurse. Yes. The, at Children's in Alabama. Yes. That's so awesome. I know. Well, thanks, Sydney, for coming on again. Of course. Thank you for having me. I love doing these. It's so much fun. And you do such a great job. It's just always so relaxed and fun just to, <laughs> to talk about this stuff with. Oh, thank you. And good luck with your nursing school when it starts back up here in a few weeks. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you guys, um, I guess that wraps up another episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And we appreciate you listening. You can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com on the web. Or you can can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can find us on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse or GMB and podcast on Facebook. And of course, you can find Sydney at Nursing Student Sid on Instagram. Nursing Student Sid on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So you guys be sure and go look her up and send us messages. We love getting your stories and Mm -hmm. more ideas. It's just, it's, Mm -hmm. I always get some really fascinating stuff from people. It's, I'm working on one right now from a story that a, that a a listener sent me. And if you haven't, haven't heard your story yet, it's, I'm probably working on it. So don't worry about it. Okay. It'll, it'll end up in there somewhere. And of course, I want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Mm